Warning, Tongue and Geek contains heavy spoilers. If you haven't read, watched, or played the content being reviewed this episode, know that we will definitely spoil major plot points. Also, this show isn't for kids. We use words like and and it would take too much time and effort to edit them all out. Please don't tell our moms. Lovely listeners, and welcome to Tongue and Cheer, where two more white guys on the internet give the gift of their unsolicited opinions on all things Holly and Jolly. I'm Isaac. I'm Tyler. And today we're reviewing Tokyo Godfathers, a 2003 anime film written and directed by the late Satoshi Kon and produced by Madhouse. Tyler, you want to give us some background? You just said that you <laughs> had the background. You set me up for failure, you piece of shit. <laughs> oh boy okay so i'm gonna cover the background because this is one of my favorite christmas movies and uh i i knew i knew less about it than i felt i should so i did do a little bit of research and um satoshi Kon, uh who died i think back in 2016 or something he directed a lot of big name anime movies perfect blue millennium actress paranoia agent or no paranoia agent was a series and uh paprika I haven't watched any of those, but I've heard they're all really good, high-level like anime films. People love them. Yeah, I was kicking myself because when his credit came up, I was like, "God, that name sounds familiar." And like, I I felt like I should have known it because I do know it because Perfect Blue, which is the only one I've seen, is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard all of these films are classics um, in all regards. Uh, the screenplay for this movie was actually written by Keiko Nobumoto. I'm sure I said that wrong. That is the screenwriter for Cowboy Bebop. Oh, so a pedigree. Mm-hmm. This movie has a good pedigree. It also was, this film was also loosely inspired by the 1948 film Three Godfathers starring John Wayne. I don't have much else background on it. It's sort of like a weird, it's sort of become a cult classic. It's gotten a decent following. It came out in 2003, but. It's still not like the Christmas staple that I think maybe it deserves to be. Uh, let's get into a little bit of plot summary before we jump into our main points. We follow these three homeless people, an ex-gambler named Gein, a runaway girl named Miyuki, and a transgender woman named Hana. Uh, they find a baby abandoned in a pile of trash on Christmas Day and decide, instead of turning it into the police, like perhaps they should have, they decide to go across Tokyo and find the baby's parents and return it so that they can ask, why did you abandon this baby in the first place? There's not really too much to explain plot-wise other than that. A bunch of stuff happens, but this movie's really more of like a series of events rather than an overarching plot, I feel like. Yeah, it's it's more of like a madcap sort of like... Even though, does it take place over one night? No, it takes place in the days between Christmas and New yeah, Year's. That's great. Okay. Yeah, but it, the the pacing is just so like kind of perfect. It has that feeling like it's sort of like a one crazy adventurous night sort of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. 
it really makes Tokyo feel like this big sprawling metropolis. Like they, and not in just like the oh, it's such a like majestic city. They show you some of the like darker, dirtier, dingier parts of Tokyo, but it all feels super lived in. It doesn't feel like a cinematic version of Tokyo that might be like glorified. It's really just like here is Tokyo at its most real and human and base in all of its way. Like it for both better and worse. Yeah, it it feels like a real as real as a representation of of a city can be in animation, I guess. Mhm. I mean, it's still stylized, of yeah. course, but yeah. like it has a very grounded sort of realism to it that makes it as you said like lived in there's a lot of details there's a lot of texture to it you see the glitz and glamour of tokyo but also the seedy kind of grimy aspects of it and everything in between yeah and that's that's because we're following three homeless people and we're seeing the sides of tokyo that people may not want to look at i think what's really cool about this film the sort of theme of coincidence as a narrative driving point, which in a lesser movie would be a contrivance. It would be something that detracts from the film. But because this movie is basically set up around the idea of a Christmas miracle, they set up very early that like the baby that they're returning, which they named Kyoko, they set up very early that this is a movie about miracles and coincidences. So all of these things happen that you like in another movie, you'd like roll your eyes like, OK, of course, this just leads them to the next thing that they have to do. But in this film, it's played so like humorously and thematically that it works. Yeah, yeah that's not something because you've first showed me this mm-hmm. um this is one of the rare movies that you showed me mm-hmm. not not i showed you mm-hmm. um we you showed it to us a couple years ago and i liked it but um i just kind of watched it on the surface mm-hmm. and i didn't pick up on all of the the themes because man this is dense if you if you really start to think about oh, it oh there's a lot in this film and i picked up on the the plot contrivances as as narrative the first time, mm-hmm. but I just kind of took it again on face value, like, oh yeah, because you know Christmas, you know, good things are gonna happen. Okay, but watching it this time, it's so baked into the core of the ideas and I, that the that the movie's exploring. Like, I kind of think it's sort of a meditation on God. In it, re- a way. it really is. This is a film about God that's not super religious. And that's like incredibly impressive. And considering the fact that it's it's a Japanese film, some I know that there is Christianity in Japan, mm-hmm. but they're using a lot of more Western ideas of, of Christianity and iconography and stuff like that with you know the the first shot of the baby Jesus in the mangers, you know, the the Anglo looking yeah. Kind of, well, yeah. It's blonde, so it's usually Jesus depicted as brown haired, but like Yeah. No, it's a very white baby. Very like yeah. <laughs> And like they're they're watching the the birth of Christ uh performed publicly and stuff like that. So it's not something you, you would expect from maybe a um this might sound ignorant as hell, but from a, a Japanese holiday movie. <laughs> so it's an interesting angle for sure. This this movie falls into the weird category of tragic comedy where it, it it goes back and forth between tackling some really heavy really dark themes but also being very very funny and silly in moments and those kind of films can come off as really like bipolar 
but in this movie, it's very much... It does a great job of moving back and forth between these two sort of, like, tones of, like, yes, we're going to enjoy sort of the silliness that we can get into with, like, these homeless characters and all of the crazy stuff that they can do, breaking all of societal rules and everything because, you know, they're outcasts and... But also, yeah, they're outcasts, you know? They're shunned from society for various different reasons and, like, maybe we need to consider how, like, detrimental and painful those things are. So when you tie in that element of, like, moving back and forth between tragedy and comedy with this ongoing theme of, like, God and miracles, you get this very interesting sort of introspective look at, like, what is faith and what, like, use does it serve and, like, how does it help people continue to exist? Yeah, um, that's a good point, as well as when, when, when we say something, when we say the movie is, is structured on plot contrivance, it do- that doesn't mean that the characters don't grow or go through anything substantial. No. Because they definitely go through hard, harsh things in this movie, but things happen in the story where it works out where they're they're pointed where they need to go mm-hmm. at, at, at certain points, even if, you know, one of them just got beat up by a gang of, of youths in the street. Like oh, that scene pisses me off every time. It's so good. And so infuriating. <laughs> I know it does exactly what it's aiming for. While yeah. One of our leads is, is getting the crap beat out of him by, by a gang of punks. And like, he's left for dead. Like, the movie's saying like it's all supposed to happen the way it's supposed to happen because he's he, at this point in time he's separated from the other two characters and then he just shows up later where where they're at and like in a in a lesser movie like that would just be a contrivance to keep things moving but here it makes sense yeah it, it, because that's that's the way the whole narrative operates it, to, to make its main point at the end there's this going back and forth with all of the coincidences and miracles where like sometimes it's like oh a good th- a coincidence happens that like guides them forward to like the next thing that they need to do but then like a bad coincidence will happen like he runs into a gang of thugs who you know beat him up just because he's a homeless man and it's like New Year's and they're just wanting to party because they're all drunk. But because he gets beaten up like that, he reunites with the gang. So it can, it goes back and forth between showing like how even in the darkest moments, there's something to like cling to there. There's some silver lining. There might be a reason behind the suffering. It's, 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 uh, this is, I think this is, despite like not being explicitly about like Jesus Christ. I mean, there's Christian elements in this film. One of the characters, Hana, is a devout Christian, and there's clear parallels between like the baby and Jesus Christ, and the three of them as like sort of the wise men. But like, despite it not being like explicitly about Jesus, this movie is very much a film about the idea of God guiding us along a, a, a life path that will bring us better happiness. And it's, yeah, like go ahead, whatever God means to you, you know, yeah. to the individual, it, it's not, you know, this God or that God, it's 
just kind of God as this unknowing sort of the spiritual, yeah, the spiritual idea of God of like there's some there's something guiding you, you know. It it may not necessarily be you know Jesus Christ or whatever. And I think we can both we've both had our opinions on religions in here multiple times before. We're both atheists, but like. I think I have this weird fascination with films that can take these religious tones and show me why they're so important to people. I think there's so much value in that because religion wouldn't still be around if it didn't matter to people, you know? Yeah, and it's not so much that these characters, and we'll get more into them soon because we're being kind of vague, I guess. It's not so much that they, like, each find, like, faith in the traditional sense. No. It's just that... The inciting incident of them finding this child in a pile of trash, much like the, you know, the three magi from the Bible, this is that's the catalyst for them going on a mission of self-discovery with themselves, as well as accepting each other as sort of like their own little supportive family unit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this film doesn't end with them all getting baptized or whatever. It's not that on the nose. It's much more about like, yeah, it's it's not orthodox. Yeah, It's, it's not orthodox in any way. It's very much about finding your purpose and meaning in your suffering in order to, like, become better and have a better life. Even if even if you don't necessarily have a change in circumstance. Because at the end of this movie... Well, let's, let's get into some of the characters first. Let's talk specifically about them. I guess, for expediency's sake, we could probably just kind of, like, name them all again and their basic kind of character traits and... Okay. Uh, like... Uh, so Gein, um, we can start with Gein, I guess. Uh, he's an ex-gambler. He used to own a store with his wife, but then he like gambled his money away, and he left his family in order to save them from debt and out of shame and everything. And he's been on the streets, possibly the longest of the trio. He's sort of a gruff, mean, sarcastic old man who's you know so tired and cynical about everything around him but also having been like a father he's he has this deep in like feeling of responsibility to the group so even though he's constantly being gruff and mean and hateful towards them and showing being like rude there's also very much this deep-seated sense of like i have to protect them i have to take care of them this is my family mm-hmm. yep that's Gian. That's and then we got Hana. Hana is the emotional core of this film. Hana is this wonderful transgender uh, woman. Uh, actually, we watched the English dub most recently, and in the English dub, she is portrayed by Shakina Nafak, who is a transgender actress. Um, I think she is best known from Difficult People, is what she was on. It's like a Hulu show. Okay, I've heard of that. Yeah. But she does a wonderful job portraying Hana because Hana is. Let's talk about Hana. I, I want to start with Hana. I want to actually dig into Hana. All right, let's do it. Hana as a transgender. This film is a tragic comedy, and as such, it goes back and forth playing with notions of transphobia and homophobia. I think. On a surface level viewing, I could see somebody watching this movie and thinking that like it's espousing some transphobic ideas but I, on repeated viewings you start to realize that like no 
there are transphobic characters in this film, and transphobia is a problem that they deal with in this film, but this movie is not transphobic. It is showing you the, like, tragedy of Hana and all of the suffering that she's dealt with just because of how she identifies. Even the characters close to her, like Gein and Miyuki, will, like make fun of her as like a homo with no balls and make comments like that. And she takes them in stride. She takes them rather well. Uh, Sometimes she'll like blow up angry at them for a comment like that. But like, you can tell that like, she's just been beaten down by this world that refuses to accept her for who she is. And yet she still maintains this positive attitude of like, wanting to be she's she's the maternal figure in this film she's very motherly she takes care of the group she's like very emotionally supportive wants them all to be happy and be their best selves she falls in love with the baby that she when she first finds it and she names it Kyoko she wants to return it to her family because she's the reason they don't just turn it into a police station because she has to know why a mother could abandon her child Like, she is so driven by that maternal instinct that she cannot fathom a child being abandoned. Yeah, it's, um, I don't want to say anything that makes me sound ignorant of LGBTQ plus issues, because as we say in the intro, we're, you know, we're white dudes. I'm straight. Isaac's not. I'm I didn't, I didn't out him. Don't worry. He he <laughs> outed himself before in a previous episode. I think we. Yeah, I think I've made that um, times. Lately, I've watched some analysis and read some analysis of of films that I've always been a fan of that have LGBTQ themes, um, queer coding, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and sort of how the community, not as a whole, because obviously they're not a monolith, right? But just analysis through that lens. Mm-hmm. I didn't deep dive this one, but I didn't come across anything where somebody took offense to it. I'm not saying that they're not out there or that it's invalid if they did. Yeah. But I guess I guess that's a testament maybe to the sensitivity of the character and how well she's written that I didn't come across it right away. Because although she is victimized by characters throughout the movie like she never questions herself no she she very much knows who she is there's never a moment where she's like i don't believe like am i wrong about this she is very much aware that like she even says at some point like god made a mistake giving me balls (laughs) like even though she's like a devout christian she makes the joke of like god made a mistake giving me balls so like it she's just this out and proud woman and it's beautiful and and while there are jokes aimed at her you know as a person they're not at the expense of the character mm-hmm. um you as the audience member you're not supposed to just be like Haha, yeah you 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 tell them for being you know weird and choosing to be who they are it's it's obvious it's very much meant to be like ooh, you know like yeah come on guys for a, for a 2003 animated film, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty freaking cool. It was. You know? It is cool. And a lot of times when jokes do t- are aimed towards her, like, a lot of times she'll get called, like, a fairy or she'll be called, like, a homo or whatever. Um, and sometimes she'll let it slide, but depending on the context, she'll beat the shit. She actually w- worked in, like, a uh, drag bar 
at, at one in her past, and then we find out that she left because she beat the shit out of one of the clients for calling her a fairy. It's just such a wonderful background, just seeing Hana just go ape shit on this guy for like making fun of her. But like, yeah, despite the fact that there are a lot of characters in this movie who give her shit for her sexual identity, it never feels like the movie itself is doing that. It always feels like this is just another burden society is placing on her and she stands proud against that burden. For a movie to be so, you know, one of the biggest themes, obviously, is outcasts, Mm -hmm. societal outcasts, people who we look down on, who we ignore. Yeah, we don't give the time of day whose whose pain we don't consider for a movie about those themes. It's um pretty cool that it's forward thinking enough to kind of go all the way with that. Yeah. And what's so I think it's really cool that like we get to see the arc of how the other members of the trio treat her. Because in the beginning of the film, Gein's pretty, like, you know, dismissive of her. He he makes a lot of homo jokes towards her and everything. But by the end, he's much more respectful of Hana. Uh, Miyuki has an enormous turn. She starts out being, like, disrespectful towards both Gein and Hana. But by the end, she clearly sees Hana as, like, a surrogate mother figure. She goes from calling her, like, old bag lady she, she at first she was calling her like queer and then she started calling her old bag lady because hana like hit her over the head once or something for saying queer and then um by the end of the movie she's calling her miss hana and it's just mm-hmm. like it's just so beautiful to see like the other characters recognize this feminine maternal figure and realize that like this isn't just some act this isn't just some deformity or weirdness this is just who this person is and it's beautiful and it's such good character writing because it is. with movies like this that that have emphasis on you know character growth and arcs and relationships like a lot of the time and it's not always bad but a lot of the time most of the time the emotional growth is too obviously exposited mhm where there's like, oh, like, it's basically the character explaining how they changed or why they changed. It's right. not like that in this film. You you understand <laughs> the, the arts that they're going through without having the movie needing to stop and, like, have the characters exposit about everything. Mm-hmm. And the context of the movie itself and what we learn about the characters throughout the movie is enough to totally make you understand their growth by the end of it yeah so hana is she's the emotional core of this film she's the driving force because like i said she was the one who demanded we take kyoko to her parents directly instead of turning her into the police and it doesn't feel like a self like she says she admits at some point it was selfish but it doesn't feel like a selfish reason in the moment you understand why she's doing it it because it's because like she has to know how a mother could abandon her child. She cannot. She cannot rationalize that in her mind. You want to move and, on? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was. I was just gonna kind of tack on to my point that I just made. You really understand why each character behaves the way they do toward each other mm-hmm. in the beginning, just through sheer interaction, and like you understand why Miyoko is, you know, disrespectful to both Hana and Gein. You understand why. Gein acts the way he does to the other two and Hana to them two throughout the course of the movie, just through how we learn about them. Mm-hmm. Um, with um, Miyuku, it makes perfect sense why Miyuki. she's disrespectful. Miyuki, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think you're blending her with Kyoko. <laughs> yeah. 
It's fine. We learn we learn throughout the course of the movie that she's, you know, she's had a troubled past with her parents, mostly her father. And that just kind of brings it puts everything in the context. Like, oh, that's why she's disrespectful to Gein. And that's why she's like that way, you know, with Hana. Mm-hmm. So I I wanted this to be more eloquent. So No, it's fine. Move in that's a good moving in point for Miyuki. Um She's also the most recent of them to be homeless, uh, not just because of her age. She is like a teenager, but also just the fact that she left home like six months ago and is has been living with them on the streets. So there's definitely like this sense. And she even says early on, like, I could go back whenever I want to. So she's still kind of got this like fantasy of like, I'm not actually homeless. I'm just sort of being a rebellious teenager right now. She's kind of denying, like, the actual severity of what happened until, like, finally she has, like, this breakdown and realizes just how bad she messed up with her family, which her her whole thing was that she was, I think it was sort of implied that she was sort of a loner when she was younger because she was a bit more heavy set and everything and maybe she was picked on in school, but she was really obsessed with her pet cat who went missing and she blamed her father for this. I think, I, I don't remember if they say why in particular she blamed him. Maybe he like opened the door and the cat ran out or something. But uh, she blamed her father and had a meltdown and actually stabbed him before running away. Uh, and then she's been on the street since. And at the beginning of the film, you get the sense that like she's just sort of being a rebellious teenager and whatever. But as it goes on, you realize how much she regrets those actions of like, messing up with her family and being like disrespectful and pushing them away and everything you get to see her come to terms with like her own blood related family through her connection with Hana and Gein because she's so disrespectful towards them at the beginning but as she gets more and more connected to them and more and more invested in them like she she becomes she starts to realize that like she can trust people she can have respect for parental figures whether they're her actual parents or these two people who took her in and took care of her and it's it's really interesting because there's not a whole hell of a lot of context with her Mm -hmm. as far as you know her past but at the same time there doesn't need to be because like it it just totally works you know Mm -hmm. like you just describe it like she thought her father purposely like got rid of her cat who she loved so she stabbed him somebody hearing that would be like what that's why she's like on the streets now and like (laughs) yeah but like because the movie's so tightly woven what little context they give you makes all the difference just through the little bit of flashback you like understand that like she just has this like tension specifically with her father um reasons we don't necessarily know completely he's he's a cop so maybe that has something to do with it maybe he's you know not always home maybe mm-hmm. he's just aloof and distant and we we also get the sense that you know she feels he's controlling in a way and with teenagers you know you don't know you know what kind of emotional turmoil they're dealing with if they're if if they you know they can't feel like they can't share it with with people or if they feel like they're not being seen or heard you know mm-hmm. when you find out that she stabbed her father and ran away like it's not like a moment where you're like oh this this is this is too dramatic or this is stupid or she's an awful character it's just you just feel sad you know you just feel empathy that it got to that point you know mm-hmm. where whatever was wrong with her inside 
broke at that moment mm-hmm. where she feels like she couldn't take it back. So she had to go and run away and live on the street. She also has the best line in the movie, which is big breasts, cool. <laughs> which- yeah, she has the whole fight adventure with uh, an assassin's um, wife <laughs> in their apartment. Mm-hmm. She's watching their breastfeed like two babies, the one that they were taking care of and her own baby. And she's just staring there with like a cup of coffee in her hand. And she goes, big breasts, cool. <laughs> He's... She's a relief. They're all funny. They're um, all real funny. They all have amazing facial expressions, but for some reason, like every time she pulls a face, like mm-hmm. it cracks me up. Like she's introduced like Hawk and a loogie, like spinning <laughs> in the crowd. Yeah. Like <laughs> the animation in this um, is really good. It it does a great job of going from like cartoonishly silly to like very s- sincere and subtle in its facial expressions. Uh, the animation director is Ooh. Kenichi Konishi. Which is kind of hard to say back to back. They directed um, My Neighbors the Yamadas, which was, uh, I think, another comedy anime anime movie. But um, yep, Studio Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the this movie does a great job of having its animation move back and forth between like here's some very subtle, intense, sincere facial work, facial work, and now suddenly they've got the big over the top anime f- heads and faces and mouths and everything that makes them look like big silly cartoons and everything. It 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 very much feels anime in the like hyper real depiction of human emotion. And not in the way that feels like contrived and like, ugh, this is pulling me out of it. It's very much like this sort of hyper real sense of human emotion adds to both the comedy and the tragedy in this film. It's not like, you know, anime protagonist screaming kind of no. over the top. It's, it's perfectly emphasized, basically, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. When it needs to be. Yeah. And, um, you, you mentioned breastfeeding. Um, We get... I think three separate shots of boobies uh, breastfeeding a child. And I just wanted to make one? like a, a, a funny broy. Um, doesn't um <laughs> the mother, the fake mother the does baby's mother. Yeah. The fake mother does. Yeah. Then there's the wife of the assassin. Who, what was the third one? Though? I don't remember a oh, third one. Oh, I mean, I meant, I meant three, three breasts. Oh, we see three cause breasts we see two breasts on the, okay. Okay. <laughs> totally. Yes. And I'm and I'm One trying and a half to, set. At first I wanted to make like a I wanted to make like a broy haha boob joke. But <laughs> I I can't help but think there's some kind of like theme or purpose to showing a close up of breastfeeding uh that much in the movie. Well the theme of motherhood um, is I can't pull I can't I can't Yeah. The theme but of- I didn't want to just say <laughs> breastfeeding, motherhood, theme, because that sounds kind of well, let's explore that a little more in depth because we talked about Hana as a mother figure and she is to the group, but the, this entire thing, this is skipping around in the plot a bit, this entire incident happens because we find out that this woman steals the baby, Kyoko, from the hospital after having a stillborn or, or having a miscarriage. I don't know if it necessarily explains which one happened, but she stole the baby and then as she was being chased by the police, she left it in the trash to avoid getting caught. And these people that our heroes have been looking for this whole time are not the actual parents of the baby Kyoko. Um, But they accidentally return them to this fake mother, this crazy woman who stole a baby. And 
you, you get this, you don't feel like this woman did this out of malice. She's very much broken. She's broken from the loss of her. So every, everybody in this movie is broken. Yes, everyone in, in this movie is deeply broken in different ways. Uh, but this woman who is the closest thing we have to a full-blown antagonist, she's deeply broken by the loss of her own child to the point of, like, needing another child. And she wants to force motherhood to happen. She wants to force motherhood on Kyoko. And you actually see that in the breastfeeding scene. She's trying to make Kyoko drink from her breast, and Kyoko is just scream crying the whole time um, because she... I guess the emphasis is that, like, Kyoko recognizes her as her kidnapper or whatever, but she's trying to force Kyoko to breastfeed, but she just won't. And she will not come to terms with the fact that her own child is gone and that she's inflicting pain on this new child and this child's parents by trying to steal motherhood from someone else. There's, I guess you could say that there's also a huge running theme of nurture throughout because Yin couldn't, you know, nurture his family in the way he should have because of his, his addictions and his gambling habits. So he left. Hana just wants to nurture, you know, like that's just mm-hmm. in her person. But because of the way society is structured, any little step out of line for her, you know, she's, you know, get out of here. Um, she'll never seen, she'll never be seen by society as a legitimate maternal figure, except for these three people who, like these other two people who have come to know her personally. Which is so such so tragic, and yet she still like holds her head high, and it's God, I love Hana so much. And now I have this complex about getting her name wrong, so say it for me again. Hana? No. Miyuki? The teenager. Miyuki. Miyuki, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Miyuki, you know, feeling unnurtured by her father mm-hmm. and all of these people with different sort of like aspects and relationships to nurturing mm-hmm. come together themselves, you know, and sort of rely on each other. And then lo and behold, on Christmas, they find basically an avatar of baby Jesus. Yeah. It's, <laughs> to it's, nurture themselves through that, they come to terms with themselves and each other. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I want to say that not necessarily motherhood but nurturing would be that's, sort of the uh that's a good way of putting symbolism it. yeah of, of the breastfeeding that's a that's a good way of putting it um because even though like hana specifically is like tied to motherhood this more feminine aspect of it all of these characters do have nurturing elements to them in different ways uh both in their personal failures and in their arcs in trying to help kyoko um, and, and again, he sees that, you know, the, the obvious, like, this is what you're going to become if you don't get yourself straight with that dying old man in the, in the snow on the street. Mm-hmm. He nurtures him, you know, in his final moments. Yeah. Gein- ah, I did. I, I pulled it out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. Good job. Gein is really interesting because I feel like out of the main trio, he's the one that might be considered the stereotype of a homeless person the most in that he got to where he is through personal failing. The way that society wants to think of these people, it's like, oh, they got here through their own failure. Like, Gein got to where he is because he was a gambling addict, ended up making 
a huge gamble and spending way too much money and hurting his family and had to leave out of shame and not wanting to cripple them with his debt. What we see from Gein, though, the entire movie is someone who is battling with this th- this back and forth between just wanting to give up and accept that, like, yeah, I failed, society's right, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, you know, I'm, I'm the lowest of the low, I'm trash, and so are you all for being here with me. You know, we're all just garbage, you might as well accept it and just try and survive as long as you can. And this other side of being, like... I recognize that, like, this child, this infant did nothing wrong to get here. This chi- this baby that we just found cannot be a failure. I think that's his whole arc with Kyoko is that he he sees something suddenly so pure and so innocent. He cannot accept that that child is going to just be, end up on the streets like him. And he starts to re- recognize that he still has value in this journey to, like, help this child. Because he starts to recognize that, like, even if I am completely shunned by society, completely put down at the bottom of the gutter, I can still help someone have a better life. So I still have value as a person as well and like he starts to realize i don't know if he ever fully comes to terms and accepts that like his ideology of like us homeless people are worthless i don't think it ever explicitly gets to the point where he realizes that like that was bullshit and that it was society putting this ideology on him but there's definitely this transition from Gein, the guy who's self-deprecating and also making fun of his friends to Gein, the action hero who is willing to jump onto the side of a charging truck and like try and save this infant's life in order to just prove not 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 just to help the infant but to prove that he's still worth something yeah doesn't doesn't Hanna like oh my god you're an action star yeah you're not just an action star you're a superstar superstar yeah and it's it's so touching too because Hanna and Gein have this very like back and forth between antagonistic of each other and supportive of each other they're basically an old married couple they go back and forth between like cutting each other down undercutting each other and then also being super supportive and helpful towards one another and like to have that moment where Hanna like calls out to Gein and says he's a hero is just so so uplifting because he spent the whole movie calling himself trash and now someone who like has seen the best of him is telling him he's not just worth something he's worth a lot yeah and i'm such a goddamn sucker for like the gruff asshole redemption arc <laughs> absolutely so, <laughs> that's one of my um weaknesses for for tropes i just mm-hmm. i love that trope and <laughs> he embodies that perfectly. I love to see a bitter and, old um, man grow a heart. Ah, uh, well, I'm a bitter old man, <laughs> and I've grown a heart. I love a good Grinch. I love a good Grinch like, story. I'm I'm wearing my Grinch shirt right now. Yay! Should we talk about the ending and what we think it means? Sure. Uh, unless you wanted to I, talk I do, about other things before we, got there. <laughs> before we get to the ending, I want to talk a little bit more about the idea of coincidences and miracles, specifically with like specific elements in the movie so like 
they find that they find Gyoko. They decide they're going to take her to her parents instead of turning her into a police station. It is so crazy how well the writers do at like building all of these coincidences because they kind of just stumble across a guy under his car. Like, the car is, like, on a steep hill in the snow, and, like, he got trapped underneath it and is about to die, and they managed to, like, get the car off of him. Turns out, this guy's a mob boss, and he was on his way to his daughter's wedding, and he invites them to come along with him. So, okay, we go to the mob boss's daughter's wedding. Where is this taking us? Oh, suddenly there's an assassination attempt on the mob boss. The groom-to-be steps in and takes the bullets for him, and... Miyuki gets kidnapped during this assassination attempt, which then leads us to Hana and Gein splitting up. Gein finding out where the two people who, like, we think are the parents who turn out to not actually be the parents. Uh, Gein finds that out while he's on his own, uh, having this moment with this older homeless man that he sees die. Um, in a very mix of funny and tragic, um, while at the same time, Hana goes out to go save Miyuki and Kyoko, or Miyuki and Kyoko, yeah. Um, and then they reunite at, like, Hana's old drag bar. And just, like, the way that this movie uses coincidence to drive the plot forward is not, it's not done in a way that's lazy. It's done in a way that's super duper intentional and is super well done because it never feels like anything is happening for no reason. It feels like everything's happening for a lot of reasons and you're just not quite able to piece it together until the end. I can't remember the specific flow of events, but was it after he got his ass kicked that he saw the picture of the towers from the photo or no, he, before? He, I think he was... It was during that, because he found it amongst the older homeless man's stuff. He found the picture yeah. of the towers, and, like, it had, like, the specific location to go to. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's structured so well. Like, mm-hmm. Which is, I would, I'm, I'm glad you suggested watching this again for the pod, because I liked it when we first watched it, but, like, I just, I wasn't picking up on all of the nuance of it the first time. Yeah. So. Uh, let's talk about the ending. Let that... First viewing, uh, when I saw the ending, I'm like, okay, you know, Christmas movie, miracle. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that makes sense. But again, as I just said, second time, like, oh my God, I see exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I've noticed the visual hints that they've been laying on us this whole time. The, uh, the finale gets pretty harrowing. We have Miyuki on the roof with the thieving not-mother who is having a complete breakdown. She has the child in her arms and seeing another option. She's just, she's going, she's going to jump. Yeah. She's going to jump. Miyuki's trying to talk her down, trying to tell her to do what's best for Kyoko. But this woman is just like so broken inside. She's about to jump and take both of their lives. And, um, Hana to the rescue. She manages to run off the roof just in time. The roof is at a slight angle. So she kind of slides down it. Catches the baby, and um, she grabs this. What do you? Would you want to call it a it's banner? Like a, it's like a big banner, yeah, like a big banner Christmas banner set up. She's holding on to it, but they're falling, and they're gonna splat, you know, because yeah. how, how are they gonna survive this? But this divine gust of wind comes rushing through the city, catches the banner like a mast, and gently deposits them to the streets below. And um, I forgot, forgotten, it ended. It ended like that, mm-hmm. but I did notice that there was 
prominent wind throughout the movie in certain spots. Oh, yeah. I need to watch it again to <laughs> try to piece the piece together thematically what the wind meant in, in the earlier instances. But I did notice that wind played a factor in the, in the movie more. So the wind saving them at the end, it, it, it's deeper than just, you know, here's the, here's the big Christmas yay miracle thing. It's the wind means something. It's like, it's like I said, it's like a divine wind. It's, I think it I think it's supposed to symbolize like the constant presence of something watching over them. Um something, you know, whether it be God or whatever, uh something is looking out for them. There is a reason that things happen. There is an order to things going on and something is keeping an eye on them for their own benefit. A benevolent force wants them to see this through and it's not going to act directly that's why it's wind that's why i think it takes the form of wind something you know you can't see at least not directly you can see the effects of it and i think that's what it's kind of saying about god is that we may not see god you know we may not have proof of god but if you look you can see the effects of the divine whatever it may be helping to guide us through life yeah, and um, not gonna lie, it uh, excuse me, <laughs> <Damn> it. <laughs> right, right at the best part of the pod. <clears throat> okay, you good? Uh, yeah, it, it kind of uh got me in the cockles a little bit there on on, uh, on the second viewing. Yeah, it neither got, one got of me us a little misty. Yeah, neither one of us is religious. We're both atheists. We both have very good reasons for not believing in God. But I see so much value in a film that can express that sense of like what it means to have faith in something looking out for you. Like I, mean, I, I have no problem with with fiction like exploring spirituality, know, faith yeah, or religion. Just. I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, some pure flicks, God's not dead, 85 bullshit. Right. But um, in, in an honest, in an honest, nuanced way, like it doesn't bother me at all. Because mm. because in this movie, it's not grounded in like the idea of like, oh, praise God for all these things. For it's no, it's showing the very human aspect of how our spirituality can help give meaning to what seems like coincidence. And that's the, that's what's so crucial to this film. You can look at this film and you can say everything that happens in this is just a series of incredible coincidences. You could say that even the wind coming up at the end is just an incredible coincidence that happens. Or you can look at all of the stuff that occurs that brings us to that moment. And you can say, this was a miracle. There was someone or something that led us here. Mm -hmm. And the great thing, like the movie doesn't doesn't, tell you, sorry, I was going to say the movie doesn't tell you which to believe. It just gives you the emotional prompt. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in an odd way, like this movie pairs so well with signs. (laughs) 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 That whole movie is about coincidence. And, seeing quote unquote signs and recognizing them and like everything kind of clicking and coming together and making sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's your double feature, uh, <laughs> Tokyo Godfathers and signs. There's the official recommendation. 
that that came out in the same year. I believe Signs also came out in 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there was something in the wind (laughs) in 2003. (laughs) (laughs) After that scene with the wind, uh, there's a very short wrap up where Hana and Gein are in the hospital from, you know, injuries they sustained trying to save Kyoko. Miyuki's there with them. We find out that the actual parents of Kyoko, which is not her real name. I don't remember what the baby's actual name was. I just know that's Kyoko because they keep calling her Kyoko throughout the movie. And we keep running into other Kyoko's, which is another yeah. hilarious coincidence. The mob boss's daughter's name is Kyoko. Gein's daughter's name that he left behind's name is Kyoko. Like, that's it's so good. But the actual parents decide to make the three of them Kyoko's godfathers. They actually are told at one point by like a police officer, actually Miyuki's father, I've been told they're homeless. Does that matter? And they're like, of course not. They saved our child. There's this very sweet moment where like all of society's trappings just fall away at like the beautiful thing that happened with this child. Of all the, like, generosity and love and care and sacrifice that these three people put into making sure this child got back to her parents. All of the good that they do finally burns away society's, like, expectations of them as homeless. And they're just seen as these people who did a good thing. Yep. Um, Who knows how long that's going to last. But I don't think the movie wants to leave you with that kind of, you know negative sort of thought because by the end of the movie, all three of the main characters are in a better place Mm -hmm. with themselves and with each other. Um, (laughs) And it doesn't, it doesn't give you a nice little bow. That's like, Oh, they all ended up, you know, going back to their old lives or getting a lot of money. There's actually a really funny joke that like, Gein had the winning lottery ticket and he just didn't notice and he like yeah. threw it in the trash. <laughs> That's a pretty good joke. And also good for him thematically as an ex-gambler is just like, I didn't care about the lottery ticket anymore anyway. I, that's not important to me anymore. The movie doesn't give you a nice little bow where everything's suddenly hunky-dory for them, but it does leave you with this sense of, like, regardless of what happens to them moving forward, they are better people and better off for having met Kyoko and coming together as a surrogate family. Yeah, and it leaves the door open where all three of them can start getting their lives back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, Hanukkah, go, Hanukkah go back to her, her club family. Um, Gein reconnected, can reconnect with his daughter, and mm, Yuki. <laughs> I'm so nervous about saying her name. <laughs> it's just Miyuki. You got it. Oh, I said Kiyuki. Miyuki <laughs> <clears throat> saw her father. Um, they didn't have they didn't have much of a scene together, but that's another kind of divine coincidence that happens. They've it's, had a few small moments throughout the film where they yeah, bump into each other. each other. They're on yeah. the train. They're on separate trains, and they like the trains stop, and they see each other from across there. Miyuki freaks out and runs away. There's a moment where Miyuki um, tries to call him and apologize, and it's a beautiful scene where like she's on the phone. She starts to like sort of hyperventilate, and then he he like asks like hello, and she's just breathing hard into it, and he recognizes just her breathing and says her name and she just breaks down into tears and hangs up on him this whole time you can tell she wants to reconnect with him she wants to make up for what she did but and he and you get the sense that like despite any ill givings between them prior like he is a loving father who just wants his daughter back 
Miyuki's arc is a perfect example of minimalist storytelling. We don't know the whole story between her and her father. We don't know all the details of her life growing up that formed her into the person she is, but we get just enough to know exactly what this arc is and how important it is to her to sort to see it through. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. I was wrong about Signs. It came out in 2002. Uh, <laughs> this movie stole from Signs! <laughs> I keep thinking about that. For some reason, Hannah's line in the hospital where they're all together. She's like, I bet this is the men's ward. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah's like, I can't believe this. It's it's unbelievable. And they're like, what? That we're not getting like a reward? Or I don't remember what Dean says to her. And she's like, no, that they put me in the men's ward. It's just such a perfect... She has so many perfect jokes for herself where it's not even really a joke. She's just being so open and, like, honest with her feminine identity. And, like, it's not... It's a mix of, like, funny, but also, like, hell yeah, you go, Anna. Yeah, I I love this movie. This is a fantastic, fantastic movie. It's a beautiful film, regardless of its... I think it is very much a Christmas movie because it hits on the whole... All the themes of family, on, like, actual parallels to, like, biblical elements of the nativity and Jesus. It hits on spirituality and God. But, like, I think even ignoring the actual Christmas aesthetic and time frame, this is just a beautiful movie to watch any time of year. Like I was saying earlier about being a sucker for, like, the gruff old asshole man becoming better trope. Like, mm-hmm. this movie is just full of tropes that I love. I love broken outsiders finding redemption. Mm-hmm. I love that trope. So, so many tropes that know how to just open my heart like a can opener. Just it's it's It does a great job of making you feel good and feel bad and then feel good again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this movie will uh, break your heart. It'll, and, uh, it'll hurt you, and then it'll pick you right back up. Yeah, it'll put you right back together again. Mm-hmm. And it'll make you laugh your ass off, because it's fucking funny. It's so <laughs> funny. It's so funny, and then so dark. That scene, uh, I don't know how much we actually talked about it earlier, but there's a, there's a scene right after Gein has this very touching sort of funeral for like this older homeless man who's just on his dying bed, where a bunch of... Freaking delinquents drag Gein and the old dead man out into the street and just start beating them up because they're homeless and because they're drunk and they just want to do something fun for the night. Like, this movie does not shy away from the plot of the homeless. It touches on so much. There's scenes where people will, like, cover their nose when they're in there with them because they smell bad, and they'll just, like, mock them and make fun of them for their terrible smell. People, they get kicked out of, like, shops for just being homeless and everything. Like, it shows very much that homelessness is a serious problem, specifically within the context of Japan and Japanese culture. It's incredible that this movie can be so heartwarming and heart-wrenching at the same time. Yeah, I I was reading an article about it where um specifically about the homeless um angle mm-hmm. where Japan hadn't at least at that time don't want to talk out of turn cuz I don't know what it's like now, but at, at least up to that point or at that time they weren't being very forthcoming and honest about their homeless population and mm-hmm. how like they've been dealing with it. It's quite obvious that this movie is informed by that. Yeah. To, I can only assume a, a very honest degree because sadly in America too, freaking young asshole kids love beating up homeless people. Yeah. That's a, a disgustingly, shockingly common thing that still happens. 
Ugh. Fucking messed up. Um, any last points before we get into review review? Um, only that um, I am disappointed with my performance today. So I am calling um, for sympathy from our non-existent audience. <laughs> um, you've, done, you've done good. You've brought up some good points. I like throwing pity parties um, <laughs> because I have terrible inadequacy issues. So we're being, but we're I being do really want... open today. Yeah, I, I apologize but, uh, for all my coughing. I've got like a sinus infection or something. It's going to be a bitch to edit. Yeah, uh, I love this movie. It's a great movie. I'd say it's um, pretty much perfect, basically. I, I put um, I put it in my top three Christmas films and possibly in my top ten films altogether. Wow. Yeah, it's up there. I mean, it, it's a good one to put on there. Um, for a 90, 95-minute movie, it's like, it's so jam-packed. Yeah. It's just full of great characters, great humor, great themes you could dissect for far longer than we've been doing it. But we're woefully unqualified to do so, so... <laughs> Stop, stop shit-talking our podcast on our podcast. Getting... Oh, the internet, the internet loves self-deprecating humor. So I'm just trying to, you know, stay on that gravy train. You're going to have to go on a gene arc of being a self-deprecating yeah. jackass to finding love and self-worth and being useful to others in doing so. As long as I can play this tiny violin, I will. Okay. Review review time. Uh, I was real happy to see this on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a 91% tomatometer and a 91% audience. Weird that they're the exact same amount from both audience and critic, but just also yeah, people, tend to happen. people just love this movie, which is great. First review, and this is talking specifically about the ending, comes from Benjamin G. Benjamin says, The twist at the end felt like just a way to enlarge a movie that was doing great so far. 3.5 out of 5 stars. And I think maybe that's sort of what your first reaction to this film might have been. Kinda. I wouldn't have called it a twist. Yeah. I wouldn't describe that as a twist. Um, I just, I didn't dislike it the first time. I just, you know, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, Christmas movie. It's a movie about redemption and, you know, nice things happening. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe that as a twist. If, if you're not, and I don't mean this, you know, condescendingly if you're not paying attention or being receptive to what the movies is saying i can see how people can be kind of like oh that's kind of a cheat yeah but it's so not a cheat like (laughs) it's very much not a cheat yeah it's 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 core to the themes of this film like the miracle that happens is core to what was happening throughout the whole movie it's like it's a deus ex machina in the best way possible yeah like it is god from the machine it is a literally a deus ex machina patrick b says while i am wholly ignorant of japan's treatment of queer people the inclusion of a trans woman as a main character was particularly striking especially considering the movie came out in 2003 and not say after laverne cox rose to stardom and while the animation and actions of Hanasan are consistent with other representations of gay men in anime, Cone's writing gives this woman a poignancy and realness to her drives. And while her backstory is surprisingly probably the least tragic, her desires for bodily womanhood and motherhood are showcased prominently and almost respected by the other characters. And while the treatment of Hanasan isn't great, it's certainly real in a way that I haven't always seen in more American stories of queer people before. Five out of five stars. Yeah, I can't say I disagree with any of that. And they, th- that review actually brought up a point I wanted to make, but I didn't want to put my f- my foot in my mouth. Um, I wanted to mention how her story 
is like the least quote unquote tragic. And I think that is a great sort of nuance to the sensitivity and how she's written mm-hmm. because it could have been so easy for like her homeless situation to strictly be, you know, because of her, you know, trans identity. Yeah. Like she got kicked out for being trans or whatever, something along, along those lines. Yeah. But it's, it's not that it's just her existence, just not being accepted as it should be in society. That, right. That's the issue. Not, you know, she actually had a really good life before she worked at this, you know, drag bar where she was like beloved by the mem- like the staff and everything. Like she actually calls like the owner of it. Mother. I don't know. I don't think that the owner is the act, her actual mother, but we find out that Hannah actually had a husband before and was married to him, but he died. And it's the, his explanation of how he died is like the perfect example of how this movie perfectly balances tragedy and comedy <laughs> because the 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 mother figure to Hana, the owner of the drag bar, asks, "Was it AIDS?" And then Hana says, "He slipped on the soap in the shower." <laughs> and it's not—it's not played for laughs. It's very funny, but it's not like meant. She, she doesn't say in a way that's like, "Oh, I'm trying to make people laugh" or anything. She just says it seriously, and like, it's just a moment of such. Yeah, this is a funny thing that happened—that he just died from slipping in the shower, but also. This is also a very tragic because she lost the one person in this world who, like, understood her wholly as a woman. And, you know, slipping on the soap in the shower happens in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love this. I love this review so much. It's maybe my best review I've ever found. Uh, This is from David G. David says... Honestly, thought this movie was so swag. This movie was slipping and a sliding, peeping and a hiding, skeeting and a vibing. Not gonna lie, man, thought this movie was the Godfather Part 2 at first, but my swag got the best of me, and apparently I was wrong, man. Have a great one, guys. Catch me on my hoverboard at the local Pizza Hut. Five out of five stars. See, that's that's how you shitpost. Like, that's, that's how you shitpost a review. That's how you shitpost, yeah. Oh. Uh, good one, David. Brother, brother. Movie was a slipping and a sliding and a peeping and a hiding and a skeeting and a vibing. I just love it. He's a poet. I was Godfather Part 2 for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then my least favorite slash favorite kind of review comes from Jake C. Um, Jake says... Forgoing the cinematic psychedelia and self-conscious metatextuality of his other works for a tender, humanist glimpse into the familial, financial, and emotional struggles of urbanism's most marginalized and invisible citizens, Cohn sacrifices none of his characteristic idiosyncrasy, I said that word wrong, or psychological insight, the audience is reminded time and again by the main troika, no less, I probably said that word wrong too, that they are just homeless bums and not action movie heroes, having subjectively ingrained capitalisms, that's with a capital C, by the way, constant devaluation and disenfranchisement of the destitute, and so having to learn to take stock in the singular joy of the loving relationships they share with one another, by no means guaranteed to any of the wealthier, in parentheses, that other kind of godfather in particular, in parentheses, 
people that they run across in their adventures. That, of course, is the meanings of the film's nativity setting, which treats the kings as merely side characters and centers the plights and flights of the dispossessed instead. 4.5 out of 5 stars. Okay, um, once you went into your hoity-toity, snooty voice, I thought it was going to be a negative review, but it wasn't. No, he liked it, <laughs> and I agree with most of the points he's making, but god, god damn it, stop using this over-flowery, over-textbook language to describe things. Just say what you mean. Yes, this has elements of capitalism devaluing the... Bleh, devalue... Whatever. Now I can't even say it because I've gotten tongue tied. You're just mad because you can't. I'm mad because I can't talk good. (laughs) No, I I just, I'm just so sick of people saying things in ways that is clearly, clearly meant to make them seem more intelligent rather than to get their point across. It's just, ugh. It's bad communication. Yeah. It's bad communication. I I know what this guy's saying, and I agree with all of his points, but it just infuriates me to see somebody trying to make everything sound smarter than it is. I mean, that's just... I mean, I agree completely. But, um, man, I'm so used to it being, like, online in, like, film community circles for, like, fucking going on 20 years now. Like, I am so used to, like the faux academia word salad that some people love to just Mm -hmm. type out with their shitty little fingers. Like (laughs) I'm kind of numb to it by now. (laughs) I guess it is. As we we just spend an hour and a half trying to wax intellectual about the themes of that. Well, when we do it, we don't use flowery language. We're just explaining what we think. This guy's doing the same thing we're doing. He just intentionally chose words that, like, make him sound like a snooty asshole about it. Yeah, he put on his tweed jacket with leather elbow patches to write that review. We don't wear... Yeah. I'm in a t-shirt and basketball shorts telling you all this shit while I'm having a fucking like sinus infection. I can't even talk through my coughs. I have no sense of like pride or mom's house. Yeah. I'm I'm not in my mom's house, by the way. Tyler has his own house. Tyler has his own wife. (laughs) Good for Tyler. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Uh no, I'm happy for you. Wah, wah. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. And now that we've completely stolen any sentimentality and goodwill that this film has put within us, let's rate the damn thing and get this over with. <laughs> now that we've sucked the goodwill towards men and joy of the season out of it. So Tyler, will, oh, you're going to uh, give no, one. I'll go first. Oh, I, will give it, I will give it 24 inexplicable miracles out of 24 um, tragic homeless man beatings. Oh, God. I'm just going to give it three out of three um, wise, homeless godfather men who really should have been given a cash reward at the end or something for saving that baby. Like, holy shit. Like, I understand that the theme was not supposed to be. I understand that's not what we were going for. Like, oh, okay, we're not giving these people money for this. But, like, they really deserve something for saving a baby's life. Okay, well, thank you all for joining us here at Tongue and Cheer. Tyler, you want to take us out? Uh, ho, ho, ho. Don't throw your baby in the trash or steal one from the hospital. It's not It's not cool. That's the message of this podcast every episode. 
every episode we've ever had. Don't throw your baby in the trash. Yeah. That could be our sign-off. We finally found Don't our new sign-off. Don't throw your baby in the trash. That is our new sign-off. I love it. I love it's connected to yes. this film in particular. Uh, thank y'all for joining us at Tug and Cheer. Don't throw your baby in the trash. It's a Christmas uh-huh. miracle that we got that out of this.